This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. In our first episode, we will discuss what is African and African American Studies. Now let's get into it. Imagine a world where colleges and universities offered a set curriculum that was, you would be unable to revise it or to challenge this curriculum, Warrington. Wait, are you talking about schools today, Dr. Ben? What else could I be talking about, Warrington? <laughs> well, you're not wrong per se, but it was different. Let me explain. Imagine that your school, right, only let you study one week. They only allowed you to read certain materials. They only allowed you to pursue research that they permitted. And the professors specialized only in the areas that the universities allowed. Okay, so my thoughts are not everyone learns the same. Not everyone has the same interests. So are you asking me to imagine school without creativity? And critical thinking, right? The areas that may interest you are severely underfunded. The areas that you want to come and learn and go back to your community and, you know, apply that kind of learning. And you only have particular instructors to teach the same materials in the same way. Uh, You only have certain interests that are being funded and being fostered and certain interests that are being serviced by the schools. What would you think about this kind of university? Well, it doesn't sound (laughs) like college to me. It it sounds kind of like prison. Well, while it may not, you know, be able to share the same conditions of incarceration, I think you may be onto something, right? Under these kinds of conditions, you would essentially have students trapped under a single source of methodologies, looking at the same kind of frameworks, looking at only one kind of lived experience that would constrain a student's ability to be innovative, to be creative, to think outside the box, right? To think critically. These were the same exact conditions in which students of color, African-American students, this is what they had endured. And I'll have you know, we are not too far removed from that reality in 2021. So the year was 1967, and in the midst of all the uprisings of the civil rights movement, black power movement, students were also bringing that kind of fight to universities. At that same time, a number of colleges and universities, they offered no degrees in African and African American studies or any kind of ethnic area uh, or area studies for that matter. And of course, we know that the 1960s was a time where the nation was coming out of World War II. Racial tensions were very high all those kinds of conflict. At that time, segregation, people were challenging those ideas. There was severe inequality that was being challenged. People were, you know, bringing those questions about lynching to the forefront. And so the younger generation of that time saw the complacency of their elders, whom they felt were not taking racial inequality seriously. 
And as a result, a number of different student groups from all over the country, whether it was SNCC, Students for a Democratic Society, Freedom Riders, and many others uh, who mobilized to form a movement called Third World Liberation Front. African-Americans were forming solidarity with other groups, those oppressed people abroad, right? And these different groups consisting of, you know, different ethnicities, not just black people, you know, conducted protests, demonstrations at major institutions such as San Francisco State. San Francisco State College lies in the middle of a suburban community. In the fall and winter of 1968, State College was the scene of the longest and bitterest college strike yet to hit an American campus. The strike continued for five long months. At its height, the campus was essentially closed down, with over 80% of the college not attending class and supporting the strike. The so-called silent majority was not very silent. It was out on strike. Black students joined with other people of color in the Third World Liberation Front. Together, they issued a set of demands. They demanded the power to change the class and racist nature of education. There were even armed protests where students actually had rifles and shotguns and had to basically stick up their university in order to study African African American studies at places like Cornell. And their demand was what we were discussing earlier, academic freedom. Why can't we study our lived experiences? Why is that not a part of the institutional framework? So the ability to study as they chose and have professors who had those kinds of interests and were able to relate to those kinds of lived experiences and to free universities from these kinds of, you know, thinking that had formed the pillar, helped to sustain white supremacy. All of these ideas, they were essentially, if you're not studying it, you're not challenging white supremacy. And that is what these students basically, you know, were challenging these universities to do and to create programs, these area studies programs that would be dedicated to such kind of study. And so today we have over 40 colleges that offer African and African-American studies or Africana studies or Black studies or Pan-African studies, however it is called. They offer it as a major, which is some progress, but there's still much work to be done. Here at the University of Arkansas, we are just a program. You cannot get a major unless it is attached to one of the major disciplines of the university, right? So you can get an African, African-American studies alongside history or sociology or criminal justice. It is not a standalone major. And so we're seeing now this debate fueled by the presence of African, African-American studies and people's interests. People are rising up, Black, white, Hispanic, to challenge this idea that the university helped to create and to support and to create the scaffold into. We see this debate about the 1619 Project that, you know, has now been challenged with the 1776 Project, (laughs) (laughs) right? Right. And the kind of mainstreaming of these kinds of discussion, right? And so we know that this conversation is far from over. Especially, you know, the part about schools being 
these uh, essentially factories, I, I like to call them, that you know, produce white supremacists in, in training. Well, there are many politicians, you know, academics, business people, administrators, you know, who are along that same line, who we are seeing taking hold of that long historical process of trying to remove essential history from the classroom, trying to extricate certain histories, right? What the Chinua Achebe says, until lions have their own historians, the tale of the hunt will glorify the hunter. <laughs> and so we're seeing the academy basically making, you know, the hunter right. <laughs> the only historians. And other groups are, are saying, you know, we have a story to tell too. That's what we're trying to do, right? Um, during these times, having seen the effects of misinformation, this kind of blatant misinformation, we're seeing the product of people not getting all the different stories. The university being complicit in only telling this um, one kind of stories, the whole education system mm-hmm. have been excluded so many different groups, whether it's women or Native Americans, you know, but black people from the story, right? We're seeing the effects of that misinformation today. We will unpack this single story that has been established in American society for such a long time. You know, how did we get to this point um, where it's, you know, socially acceptable to teach area studies in schools and universities, because it was not always this way. So we want to bring this to the public. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African-American studies, you know, survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African-American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. And so to help us unpack the history and beginnings of African and African-American studies, our guest today is Dr. Scott Brown. Good to be with you. Now, Scott Brown is a professor of African-American studies at UCLA and the vice chair and director of graduate studies in that department as well. But he's so much more than that. He has written a book called Fighting for Us, Mulana Karenga and the Us Organization, and Black Nationalism. Dr. Brown was the editor for Discourse on Africana Studies, James Turner and the Paradigms of Knowledge. Now, James Turner was a pioneer of African and African-American studies at Cornell University, one of the hotbeds of rising African and African-American studies across the United States. And Dr. Brown reached out to former students of James Turner to write a book about how their work had been grounded in the foundational learning they got from Africana studies. So I had his former students and his writings in the book. Rather than say he's a jolly good fellow, I said, well, if you want to see the depth of this scholar's impact in institution building, then you can also look at the quality of the work of his students. So that's sort of a subtle way of making an argument of how there are so many unsung women and men in this story that we could spend hours and hours talking about. And one way of intervening is to not just show their own work, but also show 
that they are great pedagogical leaders and teachers who have trained other people. And it gave me a great sense for how this social movement that shaped my interest in the first book also moved to create institutional space and get us thinking about what the original ideas were. Can we talk a little bit about that, Scott? There were some original ideas that are intrinsic to this idea that we're calling African and African-American studies or Black studies. What are, what are those ideas from your perspective? Well, I think it comes from the much longer tradition throughout the Black world of people of African ancestry using the production of knowledge, research, as a tool in their respective and shared freedom struggles. So education for liberation, so that, you know, even if you deal with just literacy, Frederick Douglass' struggle to read, Malcolm X's struggle to read by a light in a prison cell, all those kinds of energies that are put into creating knowledge are driven by a purpose, that purpose being liberation freedom. So the traditional academy, the Western academy that the Black Studies advocates in the 60s entered was one that said, the best scholarship is that which is divorced from these kinds of concerns about politics, about, you know, this thing called objectivity or a certain level of detachment is a much better approach. And Black Studies turned that upside down and said, actually, a relevant education and they use that term relevant a lot in these different arguments. In Howard University, before San Francisco State, because Dr. Nathan Hare, who was at Howard University, leaves and goes to San Francisco State. But the question, the term was relevant. And what do they mean by that? They meant education that was accessible, ideas that don't need to just be packaged in university press publication and circulated at conferences, ideas that are accessible to people, that empower people, that these spaces would be an asset to the communities that are on in, in, in the midst of a constant struggle. So that's an entirely different point of view. Like remember now in the 60s, terms that universities like to throw around now weren't in the mix. There was no discussion about community engagement, civic engagement. You see, that's something that's actually the outgrowth of these kinds of struggles that took place. So what the students were up against was a very, very, very stern commitment to political detachment. And as a result, we've been able to create some space for that. And so that was the original idea. I like to go back when I teach my classes on the Black Studies Movement. I like to look at student and early manifesto that say what the objectives are for how, what was the early student vision. And you'll find that was a very, very progressive vision around the question of access to education. And so many of these departments, I, I believe, you know, a lot of places have cultural centers or they have auxiliary units in the community. That was, you see less of that now, but that was a part of the original vision that it would be this notion of a community. Yeah, the university is not just there to be a 
space, non-clave of elitism in the city, that it's actually a part of the community itself. And both physically and intellectually, there's movement and people coming and going and ideas coming and going and inventing themselves in different ways. I love that you mentioned all these freedom fighters, whether it was Frederick Douglass or Malcolm X, and these students who are fighting to get African and African-American studies into the university. And this, what brings it all together is what you said, education for liberation. That is the connecting thread, and it is at the heart of what Black Studies is trying to do, that we're not going to create this enclave of, as you said, elitism, where, you know, we're living the life of the mind, <laughs> you know, this strenuous work. All the ideas are circulated among educated people um, at conferences and in books that are inaccessible to the general public. And so, you know, one of the big pillars of African and African American studies was that, as you said, the relationship to the university. And so we can probably give props to Black studies for making that come university. Absolutely. But, you know, as is the case with almost any social movement, once you institutionalize and you create positions of power, you know, there's ways that bureaucracy, there's ways that the wider institution and wider agendas can also cut into the more progressive ideals that brought that institution into being. And that's one of the ironies that I talk about at the end of Discourse on Africana Studies. I say that while in the more recent years, there's been terrific and important advancement into democratizing the way we think about black communities. So we're much more attentive to intra-community and intra-racial hierarchies. So we'll talk about the LGBTQ community. We'll talk about class stratification. We'll talk about inequality within the black community. And that's a very, very important step forward as opposed to sort of talking about the black community from the idea that really it's black male spokespersons that represent the entire experience. And so that's important. Here's the irony, though. That important step forward happens at a time when the discipline of African-American studies has actually become more conservative, meaning that it has become much more professionalized much more mainstream in the idea of what constitutes its scholarship and its project. So that's sort of the, the challenge here. On one hand, you can have a conversation about black sexuality. You can have a conversation about classism in black communities. You can have a conversation about colorism in black communities. Unfortunately, as that has happened, we don't have the kind of openness with respect to who leads that discussion and what constitutes serious research on those issues. So if you look at, for instance, the great department of African-American studies at University of Massachusetts at Amherst, there was one point they had great jazz musician, Max Roach was teaching as a professor there. You had people like John Henry Clark, who's a self-trained scholar, self-trained 
He's not academically certified by the academy, but knows so much more than most people in it. And he's able to teach at Cornell. You can go on and on and on and on and see that those doors that were open for a much more expansive idea about participation and knowledge have been uh, uh, narrowed substantially. That window, that opening there has been, hasn't been closed fully, but it's getting close to becoming very much like the dominant discipline. We lose something the more African and African-American studies get co-opted by the university as an institution. Exactly. And so that's the part that I think is the challenge. How do we, in this moment of renaissance, which is never going to be exactly the same, I don't believe that you have to have this kind of this reverence for the past as if it's a golden age, but we still can be inspired by the spirit of it, right? And so in that spirit, I have strived, and of course, it's always a, a striving. Uh, I strive to find ways that step outside of what the academy certifies as production. In addition to his academic work, Dr. Brown is a musician. He takes, of course, an undisciplined approach, intersecting history, sociology, funk, music into his work. Part of his research was focused in Dayton, Ohio, the origins of funk music. But another era of his research brought him to Dick Griffey, the founder of The Sound of Los Angeles Records. Solar was considered the Motown of the 80s and played a role in Black liberation globally. It was different from record labels that we think of as political because we tend to think of politics as just in the music messaging. We don't think about what is done with the resources garnered from popular music. But Dick Griffey said that black music is black people's, and this is the language he used, this is black people's oil. So he argued that on the continent of Africa, you have natural resources, diamonds, uranium, oil, etc., that Africans themselves don't benefit from, right? Those things are used to fuel and expand the quality of life for everybody else except the people out of which that comes from, right? And so he sees that as a metaphor for black music. Black music is a resource. And he says in a diaspora, a lot of the resource that we have is our culture. And so if you're talking about black music, there's a similar kind of relationship whereby the producers of the culture, the soil, the people that make it are the least empowered by the resource they create. So when I now look to interview an artist, I'm as much interested in the notes, the scales, the chords, the tones. I'm also interested in the contract. I'm also interested in ownership. I'm also interested in how that music relates to community. So you end up discovering in my study of Dayton, Ohio, that beyond the commercial world, music was a kind of social currency that interlock these different institutions. So a roller skating ring would hire a band before they brought DJs in. The bands could make records that were pressed locally, that would get sold at a mom and pop record store and played on a local radio station. And I'll never forget, when, as I was thinking through this, the radio station in my hometown, WDKX, 
stands for Douglas King and X. It's still around today. WDKX played songs that, as a child, young person growing up and partying to that music, I would never know that that was not a top 10 hit in the world because DJs had the discretion to play what they wanted to play. So in the summer of 1979, there was a song by a group called Mass Production called Firecracker. That song was a huge hit. You could not go an hour at one point without hearing that song in heavy rotation on DKX and at parties. Now, the fact that other cities did not have that same experience shows you how much local control a community had about its music tastes, and its music consumption. So the Dayton, Ohio study that I'm doing, I ask those kinds of questions. To what extent are people's tastes and choices determined by their own environment as opposed to this being an onslaught from outside of their lived experience? So those are the kinds of questions of power, distribution, intergenerational participation. You can talk about popular music but you can also do studies of local music, like Zydeco in Texas and Louisiana. What is it about that community that sustains it? How does that music circulate? Or you can look at go-go music in Washington, D.C. There are all of these different ways that we can constantly imagine and reimagine music from an Africana studies perspective. We get to see the heterogeneity of the Black community in those kind of community-focused, local-focused-centered kind of studies. Absolutely. I think the other methodological part is the part that's probably most antithetical to the university. If I did not play bass, and if I wasn't making music, I wouldn't have the access to the musicians that I have. I have a very radical idea, which I've been known for saying. You you all who are listening out there, I'm going to say something that's going to be a little shocking. So just hold on to your, fasten your seatbelt. When you are interviewing musicians, this is the secret now. Ask musicians about music. Don't be be giving away the sauce to these people, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guess the secret sauce. Ask musicians about music. In other words, so many musicians are being asked about who they fell out with, who they were in had relationships with, what kind of drugs were they using, how did it feel to get all this money? All and and very few people talk to great artists about the art. And what I discovered because I played is that there's a different kind of symmetry that you get in dialogue with an artist when you are a practitioner, but not a practitioner that's just solely in that space because most of these artists that I've discovered have a lot of respect for intellectuals. They have a lot of respect for women and men of ideas, but they often aren't able to connect and talk with people that say, okay, why did you decide to go here on the song and do X, Y, and Z? I didn't think of it that way. I didn't say, well, let me make some music so that I could do better interviews. But it's sort of an outcome discovery that I got into over the course of this journey. At the University of Arkansas, as I told you, Black studies is approach. We're kind of tethered to the traditional discipline. As I mentioned, students can get 
a double major in history and African and African American studies or sociology and African and African American studies. And, you know, we try to do a number of different programs. We have a study abroad to Ghana. We have another, you know, spring break program where we take students to different museums around the South. We have a graduate certificate program that, you know, graduate students can, you know, enroll in. I want to ask you about in your position of institutional power at UCLA. If you can give us some insight, how do you guys approach uh, Black Studies there at UCLA? We're actually really a relatively new department in that we were a program and we were, before being a department, we were a unit of the research center, now called the Bunch Center for African American Studies. Now the instructional part is sort of an autonomous unit, and so we're still building that. We have a brand new chair, Dr. Cheryl Keyes, who's an ethnomusicologist, who already kind of has a certain expertise on the arts. Actually, Dr. Keyes is the author of the book, Rap Music and Street Consciousness, one of the first ethnographic studies done on hip-hop. It's a tremendous path-breaking book. And so we are also, though, claiming space that we are a discipline. Now, there's nothing wrong with double majoring, nothing wrong with a minor, but a degree in African-American studies has value and it will take you a long way. What kind of skills does a degree in African, African-American studies offer a student? Well, you know, there's no way you can leave an, Af- uh, a, an African-American studies department without being able to raise fundamental questions. So like, a lot of what people talk about in the context of this ever-changing economy and all the inventiveness. They talk about the need for critical thinking. And the critical thinking is not just being skeptical. It's actually a, a mode of analysis where you always look at ideas and thoughts in relationship to how they intersect and also the power dynamic in relationship to these ideas. How do you look at a claim being made in relationship to concentrations of power, in relationship to maybe less than obvious objectives underneath, the subtext. Those are the kind of things that we ask all the time in African-American studies. If we're doing it in an undisciplined way, as we do in, in Black studies, you are looking at it from this very multidisciplinary perspective. So whether it is law or economics or literature or history or music or criminal justice or psychology. So you're coming at it from, you know, that critical thinking has been forged from multiple vantage points. You have questions where your answers are coming from multiple disciplinary perspective because the undisciplinary approach is what we do in Black Studies. Right. And whether the department is called African-American studies, Black studies, Pan-African studies, Africana studies, all of these departments are invariably going to be global. And what is required now when you think about the way that corporations are transnational and that wealth is transnational, we also have to think about resistance being transnational and we have to think about liberation being transnational. 
and to be equipped to enter into the world under these kinds of dynamics. Coming out of an Africana Studies program is, I think, one that puts you ahead of the curve in that regard, the frame of reference. So you find that any topic, I'm talking about Dayton, Ohio, and funk music. Well, what's global about Dayton, Ohio? First of all, uh, a lot of people, even in the U.S., don't think Dayton, Ohio is important, let alone the world. But it is very important and connected because the golden age of black music also is tied to a relatively strong position for black workers. Why were those workers empowered? Because this was a time in which capital had invested in manufacturing here. There was a certain kind of relationship to the globe from those workers that has shifted. So the music is always going to be reflective of the socioeconomic context as well. And that is invariably a global question. These are the kinds of things that would make an Africana studies person very, very strong and capable in navigating this complex world and ever-changing world that we live in. leads us now to, as our good brother Walter Rodney used to say, our segment called Grounding with My People. Uh, You've been hearing all across this great land, everywhere we have these legislatures, they're trying to ban critical race theory. That has become the boogeyman, the catch-all term. And we are a program here at the University of Arkansas Um, We have three joint faculty. Our major is only, you know, considered uh, supplemental to other departments, as I mentioned. But how can we, even as a small program, help our listeners and people who are interested in learning about it to think about this question about critical race theory? What do you think about all this mess about critical race theory, Scott? Well, I think the most important thing is not to think about this as something that is special or unique. That the assault on black ideas that question and raise to the fore the issue of structured racism, that's been an assault that has been with us as long as black people have been raising these questions. So that's a much longer history. It's just rearing its head with new language. There was a time when similar scare tactics were used to mobilize fear among certain groups in different communities, because there are also some black folks and people of color that can participate in this. But that villainization of black thought happened even with black studies. There were essays, I remember this essay, by a very leading scholar of the left who called Black Studies, Trouble Ahead. These things are going to come. What's important is to see that those who are critiquing critical race theory, from what I have seen, and maybe there's somebody out there that knows better, but from what I have seen, have little to no knowledge of what it is. For those who may not know and we don't want them to be led astray, can you just give a little insight into that? It's very simple. Critical race theory is really a theory in legal studies, but it has obviously gone beyond it. It's a response to critical legal theory. Yeah, critical legal theory used to look at what focused primarily on the class dimensions of law. So behind a law are 
certain class interest. Let me give you a basic example. If you take, for instance, a law that's passed that cuts taxes for the rich, right, and says that we want a flat tax, well, critical legal scholars are going to say that's a tax, but it benefits that class. And here are the people that have funded that campaign for that proposition or law. That's pretty basic. Critical race theory does similar things. It looks at law in relationship to structured racism in the society. So if you have a law like another proposition, Prop 209, which bans the use of taking race into consideration when dealing with college admissions, but also a number of other municipal, that you can't think about or discuss this question of race, well, what we've seen is the net numbers of black students getting access to higher education would drop precipitously. A critical race scholar is going to look at the ways that a law like Prop 209 actually reinforces the exclusion of racial groups from access to higher education. In a, in a word, critical race theory looks at the ways that systemic racism affects everyday life and its lingering impact. And you can find that, and that's researched, and that's Evidence is shown, it's contested like any other body of thought, but it's not this basis for the anxiety. A lot of people are upset with the conversation about race and the conversation about this country's history. They don't want to talk about Tulsa and the Tulsa massacre. They don't want to talk about enslavement. It makes certain people feel uncomfortable. They found this phrase, critical race theory, Nobody in high school that I know of is saying, hello, students. Hi, today we're going to talk about critical race theory. What they're doing is using that phrase to say any conversation about racial oppression that makes anyone uncomfortable, we need to take that out of the curriculum. So it's essentially the erasure and the distortion of history or really the propaganda side of myth making. And I think even if you did a 1776 project, you can. But let's talk about 1776. Let's talk about the role of enslavement in 1776. You can change the date. It's not going to change the outcome when you apply a critical lens to looking at those watershed moments in American history. We would encourage people to go ahead and, as you mentioned, your good friend, Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, Scholars like Cheryl Harris, who are some of the architects of this work that has now gone into other areas of academic study where people are exploring these kinds of questions in education or social work or all of these other kinds of discipline. And again, this is the beauty of having these kinds of Black studies kind of oriented focus that can, you know, drive these kinds of exploration in the academy. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Brown. This has been an enlightening and fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Undiscipline is hosted by me, Karee Banton, with help from Warrington Sibri. You heard music throughout this podcast from Dr. Scott Brown himself. Thank you for sharing your music with us, Scott. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undiscipline for free wherever you can get podcasts. 
Thanks for listening. Thank you.